good morning good afternoon good evening wherever in the world you are i hope this podcast finds you happy and healthy welcome to episode 9 of stemming from africa also the second last episode of the year so grateful so merry christmas to those who celebrate or observe the holiday um the day this comes out will be christmas eve i am a lover of christmas and i will be with my family and i hope you guys um find whatever way to celebrate that brings you joy so i'll begin with apologies for last week there was no episode because i caught covid and my voice went and i was feeling really unwell i'm just now starting to get back to an normal i was fully vaxxed so it wasn't as bad as it would have been prior to that but it it still managed to kick my ass quite a bit so psa if you're not vaccinated please go get vaccinated if you live in kenya you know the government has put in regulations so from i went to the beginning of the year you can't use public services going to supermarkets clubs hotels restaurants um i think even public transport if you don't have a vaccination i have thoughts on that which i will share in a few minutes but yes i hope your december is going well i hope you have money <laughs> that you are going to save for january as well and you won't use all of it in december i hope your families are healthy i know there's a surge in covid numbers and personally i've been affected i know a lot of my family who have been affected with this wave and i just hope everybody's keeping healthy i will try to keep this intro short because i am still getting bouts of coughing and i don't want to have to pause and do so much and also this episode is not too long um but straight to highlights so i just have one highlight and that's december so for the whole month december will be the highlight because love december love christmas it's a wonderful time to be with family even though the pandemic has changed how we relate and things i was really hoping to be able to see my grandparents this holiday but i can't because i don't know what to expose them to covid and so yeah i i wish i could see my grandparents or my grandmothers thoughts uh like i said my thoughts for the week are based around covid vaccinations now i'm fully pro vaccinations i think everybody should get them i think it's irresponsible of you not to get them i think it is the moral thing to do it's the right thing to do however i feel away <laughs> about the covid vaccination um certificate mandate it's a lot of words that the government of kenya has put in so yesterday the government announced that going forward you wouldn't be allowed to use public services if you don't have the covid vaccination now i fully understand why we need it and i think everybody should get it like i said i think it's the moral thing to do it's the right thing to do however we live in a country where the government hopes to have vaccinated 30% of the population in 2023 it is not logical to expect people to to put in the mandate that they have I also feel that the government has not taken enough steps to curb misinformation which I think is a big part of why people are resisting the vaccine and 
I wish they would take up the model that we used to give polio vaccinations and, you know, measles vaccinations door to door. I think that would be better accepted and that would possibly bring our numbers, our vaccination rates higher. I just feel that overall this pandemic, every day we see how it's being mishandled and now they're mishandling the vaccination which is particularly annoying because we have so much vaccine hesitancy right now around this vaccine. And when the government does things like this, it makes things worse. But yeah, those are my thoughts. Moving on to this week's episode, our guest this week is Rafilwe Mpai. She is a neuroscientist living in Canada um, from Botswana. I had an amazing time talking to her. We talked about uh, brain autopsies and her love for ballet and music and her podcast that she's starting. So without too much fanfare, I will let you listen to her and see you on the other side. My name is Rifilwe Mbai. I am from Botswana, born and raised. I currently live in Montreal in Canada. I am doing my university studies there. So I did my undergraduate degree in psychology and now I'm doing my master's in neuroscience. I am the first born to very wonderful and supportive parents. I'm an older sister to a very courageous and passionate young lady. Um, I am a girlfriend to an incredible man. I am a new podcast host, which is both uh, terrifying and exciting, as I am sure you can relate to for sure. I like to geek out about all things science, especially the brain, and uh, I'm super into documentaries. I always love when people come and like introduce themselves expansively because I think there's a tendency to just like introduce yourself in one sphere. So I love that you went into like your family and like the things you like, I love it. So your undergraduate was in psychology mm-hmm, and then your master's is in neuroscience. What's the connection? So I actually just happened to stumble into neuroscience. Neuroscience was never really the plan. When I started psychology, I had this idea of being a clinical psychologist, particularly to children. So I applied to clinical psychology programs, but didn't get in. I was very sad about that. But at the time, I was in a neuroscience lab, and I really enjoyed the work. So it was in the area of depression, which I really like. And um, so I thought, okay, well, let me do my master's here, and then I'll reapply for clinical psychology after my master's. But um, since starting, I think neuroscience is more my thing. I think I like the more sciencey aspect of it. I think I missed that while doing psychology. Um, yeah, so it just happened to be that way. And uh, it's still in the area of the brain and human behavior. So, yeah, I'm now obsessed with the brain. How have you found studying neuroscience so far? What's your favorite thing about it? I think my favorite thing so far is doing the research. So I like that it's very hands-on. So my research looks at um, depression and child abuse in the human brain. So any manifestations of those two things in the human brain. So I work with post-mortem human samples, which my dad thinks is absolutely gross, but I think it's super cool. So I love being in the lab and running my experiments. I think that's the most exciting thing for me. But otherwise, I just think the brain is miraculous 
it does so much for us. It, you know, controls our breathing. It's our memory. It's our thoughts. It's our personality that all is in our brain. So I think it's been really interesting to learn more about the brain, to, um, yeah, to do experiments on the brain, to ask questions and try to find ways to answer these questions. I understand the idea behind working with postmortem samples because we we kind of do the same when we do anatomy. But I completely understand the reactions of everybody being like, "That's hella weird." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anytime I tell my parents about it, my dad is like, "Okay, but refuel wait, I'm eating. Don't tell me this now." And I'm like, "No, geek out with me. Let's talk science." <laughs> and I think, especially as I think a lot of African cultures have like a certain respect for the dead. So whenever it's like talk about like mutilating the dead, they're like, "How dare you?" <laughs> so mm-hmm. That's very it's, true. It's, I didn't even think yeah. about that. Yeah, I had the same reaction when I was doing my anatomy, and my dad would pick me up from school and be like, "Sit in the back of the car. <laughs> I don't want. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you sitting in the front when you've been dealing with dead bodies." And I'm like, "Yeah, but it was sanitary." Like, I don't care sit in the back of the car so yeah (laughs) (laughs) but you know it is what it is i've been approaching a lot of these conversations from a medical standpoint maybe at some point i'll change but um with a lot of doctors the inspiration behind our careers is our life experiences so like for me i was a sickly child and i had um a very close aunt of mine who was sick for a long time and i saw her get sick and so that's part of why I decided to be a doctor. Was there a specific life motivation that inspired your career or was it something you just picked up an interest in randomly? Yes. So I, before starting university, I took two years off to try figure out what exactly it is that I wanted to do. I felt very lost at the time. So I was in Botswana and I taught swimming and ballet to children. So the first year it was swimming, the second year it was ballet. And um, for the swimming, it was children aged two to about 11. And the ballet, it was eight children's, children aged four and a half to about 17. And it was during this time that I became very fascinated in the child mind. Children learn things so unbelievably quickly. Uh, they just absorb all this information so quickly in a way that we can no longer do as adults. And so then that got me thinking about my upbringing and the foundation that my parents have provided for me. I think they've provided a very wonderful foundation and a very enriching foundation. But I know that not everybody is as privileged as me in this situation. And so it just got me thinking, you know, children who have harder childhoods, how does that affect them as they become adults? So I was also at the time very interested in mental illness. And um, with a lot of these mental illnesses, the initial onset is adolescence, early adulthood. So it really seems like it's what's happening in our childhood years that could maybe lead us to develop these things or maybe make us more, uh, uh, more likely to develop these things. So with that in mind, and just, you know, how readily children absorb information, I thought, you know, I want to understand more about children. I want to understand um, about what it is about this, this period in our lives that um, is so formative. So it was with that that I was like, okay, I'm going to be a child psychologist. I want to intervene at some point before all these mental illnesses get really, really bad. 
but yeah, as I said, I didn't get into the clinical psychology program. So I'm still looking at early life experiences and how they shape development in, but in neuroscience. So particularly child abuse and depression and how that may affect our brain and just lead us into like, make us more likely to develop other mental disorders. So it's not from really like a personal experience that I necessarily had a troubled childhood, but it was in seeing other children and understanding how they develop and how their brains work that I was like, wow, this is the area that I want to be in. So is your current research based on children specifically? No. So um, my supervisor is the director of a brain bank, and this is a suicide brain bank. So a lot of the uh, brains that we get are from people who died by suicide, often having um, suffered major depressive, major depressive disorder. So it's adults that we normally get. Thankfully, not many children die by suicide. But psychological autopsies are then done later to find out their history. So then we can see which of those people had a history of child abuse or not and kind of infer from time of death how their child, well, if their child abuse then affected their lives later on and maybe if that was the catalyst for them to eventually take their own lives. I've never heard of a brain bank. This is the first time I've heard that. <laughs> and in a morbid way, it's actually really cool. <laughs> but that's because I have a bit of a morbid sense of humor. So you mentioned a psychological autopsy. Mm-hmm. Could you go a bit into detail? Of course. So it's basically where um, a psychologist interviews the family of the person who died to find out about their mental health, their mental illness, any experiences that may have led to whatever um, manifestations that they showed in later life. So just really talking to the family to get an understanding of their history. Are, are families willing to, are they forthcoming with that information? Or do you find challenges in speaking to people, especially given that they've lost loved ones to suicide? Yeah, very good question. So I'm not on the questioning side of that. So I'm only, I only get the tissue and work with the tissue after the fact. So I, I can't really speak to that. But one thing of interest is that a lot of the samples that we're getting are from Caucasians. And I think that may be because, and I, I don't mean to generalize here, but maybe that uh, Caucasians are more willing to talk about these things. I feel like given, you know, people of color's resistance to medicine and, you know, science and all of those, I think they'd be more, well, like they're less likely to donate their brains to science. So I think maybe that could uh, be why we're mostly seeing Caucasians. But yeah, I don't really do any of the interviews, so I can't really speak to that. I can relate with just the idea behind, not the idea, but the experience of having difficulty with donations because um, a really weird thing is like even getting people to donate blood. So again, trying not to generalize, having worked in a hospital, getting people to donate blood can sometimes be difficult, especially if people have beliefs about how their spirituality and their physical bodies and things like that are connected. So mm -hmm. I can imagine that getting them to donate uh, bigger things other than blood would be even more difficult. So you do the physical autopsy, then the samples come. What do you do with the samples? I'm really interested in knowing what, <laughs> <laughs> what exactly you do with the tissue. 
So what happens is the brain is split down the middle, so into left and right hemisphere. The left part is put into formaldehyde, where it is, where it is stored for, I don't know, a long, many, many years. Um, and then the other half is frozen. And basically, it's up to really the researchers on what they want to do, what questions they want to answer. So there are a number of labs that are affiliated with this brain bank, so they get preference, um, my lab being one of them. Um, so then we would submit a tissue request for the particular brain region that we want, how we want the tissue processed. And yeah, there are other, we do collaborations with other groups in different areas of the world too. So yeah, it depends on what questions you're trying to answer. It's mostly a suicide and depression bank. So it's, you're a little restricted to the, that area. Then you take your tissue and do whatever experiments you want. So I do immunofluorescence. So I label proteins with fluorescent dyes that once I look under the microscope, I can see the cells that I'm interested in. And then I do my analysis from there. This might be a premature question and feel free to not answer it, but have there been any conclusions you've drawn from your work so far with regard to the psychological autopsy and what you're seeing? I'm saying this just trying to draw a link in, because I, I imagine it's a combined effort. You have to kind of put the two together. So mm -hmm. again, premature question. Sure, yeah. So um, I've been in this lab longer than I've been in grad school. So I have been able to follow some of the projects along. And a recent finding or a paper that's coming out very soon. So we look at neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to rewire itself in response to uh, environmental stimuli. So what we're finding is that people with a history of child abuse have less neuroplasticity or they have less of a capability for their brains to rewire. So they have less of a capability to learn new memories or forget old, possibly traumatic memories. And this reduction in neuroplasticity is significantly greater than those people who have depression with no such history of child abuse or to neurological or psychological controls. So it seems like child abuse seems to be um, really detrimental to the brain. So you see these manifestations even 30 years, 40 years, 50 years even after the fact. Um, so what we're trying to really show is that um, childhood is such an important time. And we really need to protect the brains of children because, you know, these effects that happen during their childhood can lead to, you know, them having more depression later in life. And in fact, it's oftentimes treatment-resistant depression. So uh, depression that doesn't really respond to the normal antidepressants that would be prescribed. So more severe cases, more treatment-resistant um, and it seems like, yeah, that might be due to the lack of ability for the brain to rewire itself. Interesting. I think that makes sense, especially given that now more and more people are beginning to see how the 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 way they view life is shaped by experiences as a child and just things that you don't even think about. And how often, even when you go to see a therapist, the very first place they start is like, oh, tell me about your childhood. And you're like, but my childhood was perfect, you know. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of times the way we react and the way we see life and the way we see our environment is heavily influenced by our lives as children. That's so interesting. This is not how I saw this conversation going. <laughs> so I'm really <laughs> happy. You mentioned that you've been working in this lab longer than you've been a grad student. General question, how long is your master's? My master's program is two years. Mm -hmm. And I'm currently in my second year. But I joined the lab 
as an undergraduate researcher. So I volunteered um, one summer just as a summer student. And then the following school year, I started getting research credit that could count to my semester credits. So instead of taking some classes, I could do research. Um, so I did that in the same lab and uh, I have plans to stay in this lab for a PhD in the future. You've just answered my next question. <laughs> um, you <laughs> seem to really like research. So you're definitely thinking of taking this into PhD level. Yes, yes, I am. So I, as much as I was very sad that I didn't get into clinical psychology programs, I think research is more aligned with my personality. Um, I think it's more aligned with my interests. And um, yeah, I, I, I hope to teach at the university level and to be the director or like the principal investigator in my own lab one day and run projects of research and supervise students. So I guess a PhD is the only way to do that. So that is my plan. Yeah. <laughs> I love to hear women talk about those big dreams they have. And I really, really pray that everything goes through. Although it sounds like you're very much on the right path. I'm excited to see where that leads. Digressing a little bit, before we started recording, we talked about how you studied abroad. Uh, I just wanted to know what your uh, experience has been as an African woman. And then you can also talk, talk to us about your podcast. Yes. Um, so studying abroad has been very challenging, um, but also very rewarding. I, um, I think initially the biggest challenges were culture shock and um, feeling feelings of loneliness. I, I was the only one who moved from my family. My family is still back in Botswana. And when I moved to Montreal, I didn't know anybody. So I felt very lost. And of course, everything is very different from, you know, people walking down the street and not saying hi, or the food, the, the accents, the language, just everything was so, so diff different. I've since adapted to that. One thing that I'm still struggling to adapt to is the winter. So Canada gets incredibly cold. Everybody tried to warn me about this beforehand. Um, but I was like, no, nah, I can do it. I'm fine. I'll be, I'll be fine. But it's really, really hard. In fact, my first winter here was the hardest. I, I think I suffered a seasonal affective disorder just because of the lack of sun. You know, I'm African. My skin wants that African sun but she wasn't getting that. So yeah, it's just very challenging. But also I feel like I have learned so much in my time abroad. I've had opportunities that I don't think I would have otherwise gotten had I not come here. So I don't think research would be anywhere on my radar had I not left Bozona, especially neuroscience research. I don't even think there's a neuroscience program in Bozona. But yeah, I've met incredible people. I got to work with uh, post-mortem human tissue. So yes, it's been challenging, but it's also been very rewarding. And um, yeah, so with all of this in mind, I thought, you know, I, I can't be the only one who finds this, this challenging. I can't be the only one who, um, I don't know, has these feelings about living abroad. I'm sure there are other Africans who are going through these things. So I decided to start a podcast it's called Journey Abroad, and it is to highlight these stories of Africans studying and living abroad. So it doesn't matter what field or what you're doing, but just, you know, your experience living abroad. And I think 
I wanted to do this to partially create a sense of community because I felt lost and alone and that, you know, my experience was so different from the people around me. But also to share, you know, tips and tricks on how to thrive if you're somebody who's trying to move abroad or, you know, you want to say move to Canada, but you don't know where to go. You don't know how to get there. So just, I don't know, making it clear to people that, you know, there are other people out here, you know, there are people that you can ask. Um, and also representation matters so much. So seeing other Africans, you know, thriving wherever they are in the world. Um, so those are my goals for the podcast. I have started. I am releasing episode five on Friday. It is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. I will link it in the show notes. I definitely think it's it's important to see Africans thriving everywhere. A lot of the people that I've interviewed have studied abroad. And a common thing we've had is just the, for at least one degree or the other, which to me says a lot about how we need to shift, how we need to have more of the courses we want to study back in our countries, but also just the challenges faced with it. So I studied in London and I also had seasonal affective disorder. I The winter killed me. I just <laughs> could not believe that the sun was setting at four. I was just like, what? what is this madness, you know? Right. Yeah, and even just the warmth that a lot of African people have. I feel like a lot of Western people don't have that, you know? People are very warm. And I don't think you realize this until you leave your home. And then you realize how <laughs> you miss that warmth. And you miss seeing people in your skin color and you miss your food mm-hmm. and you miss your weather. And then there's the the added workload which often is a lot because you're in school and it's a lot of work so you're navigating all these changes and then also adapting to a new workload and it's a lot Mm. it's a lot so congratulations on actually thriving this far because you really are doing amazing so what challenges would you say that you faced into spheres so first as an international student and then Second, as just a student in your area of work. So I think my answer would overlap on the two. I think being one of very few in the spaces that I occupy has come with a lot of imposter syndrome, a lot of why am I here? Do I belong here? Am I good enough to be here? And I think a lot of it is in my head, but also just feeling like, okay, I need to prove to all of these people that, you know, I'm good enough to be here, but also uh, forge the way for others to come after me. So if I am in a program and I do a horrible job, then does that mean that any other black woman to follow them or any other African woman to follow me, uh, they'd also be like, oh, she's not going to do good anyway. So I feel a lot of pressure, a lot of imposter syndrome, a lot of pressure in terms of feeling like the ambassador for my family, for my country, for, you know, Africans, because for some, in some spaces, I'm the only African that these people have ever met. So yeah, it's just, I guess, navigating all of those feelings of self-doubt and just, am I worthy of this? Um, 
but I've got stickers and everything in so many different places to remind me that this is exact, I'm exactly where I need to be and to take it one step at a time. And just, I've been trying to find ways to remind myself that, you know, I worked to get to where I am. So I am worthy of this position. Everything on my CV is me. I did that. Yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge that I face, just feeling like I need to be the ambassador and do well and, you know, not let my country, my people down. Yeah, I usually feel it's quite unfair how that happens because it's a lot of times it's not even when you try not to feel that way, there's like an implied rule that you're kind of representing people. I don't think that pressure is on white people to do that. So if as somebody from your country, you make a mistake, there's suddenly like a blanket assumption Mm -hmm. that the people in your country or African women are just not going to thrive in those situations. Whereas if like somebody from a majority white or like Caucasian country did the same thing, it would just be them and not a reflection of the whole country, which, you know, racism. So (laughs) it just is what it (laughs) is. How then do you create a support system and shield yourself and shelter yourself? I try to be transparent about how I'm feeling. I try to share my worries and my concerns with others. Um, just because I know I'm not the only one who goes who suffers imposter syndrome. So just talking with other people, expressing my doubt, my feelings of self-doubt, Um, and realizing that they also have similar feelings. So just to normalize it and, you know, we're all normal. We let us support each other through our imposter syndrome. Let us lift each other up. So yeah, my partner has been a great source of support for me. When I first moved here, I joined student groups like the Black Students Network and the McGill African Students Society to find, you know, my group of people. Um, I also was part of an acapella group. And they were a great uh, form of support for me. Um, they allowed me to think about not school, like other things outside of school. So that was really great. Yeah, I've also been reaching out to mentors, older mentors, just to look to them for advice and for to tell me answer questions. And they've also been great support and remind me that I'm doing good. I'm doing just fine and not to worry. So it really takes support from different corners. And I think each dif- each support group um, has its own benefits. Like the lab support group, we'd, we'd talk about science, we'd vent about our experiments and everything. Whereas the acapella group, that's something outside of school. So then I don't even think about school or my partner, that's just a different form of support. So um, yeah, just reaching out to whoever I can and hopefully my podcast will help provide more support. <laughs> Yeah, I think the podcast is definitely, like you said, representation and just sometimes knowing that like other people have gone through the same experience and have made it through and are thriving because often you just need to hear it. You just need to hear that other people have had the same experience because sometimes you you can feel like you're alone and Mm -hmm. you don't realize that there's many other people who've, who've been through the same thing. And imposter syndrome is something I'm so familiar with. I hope, wow. (laughs) I hate it, but it's like <laughs> constantly there, you know, and just 
It's honestly the worst. I think it's always people who are very capable who have the imposter syndrome, I find, which is always like, okay, but you're very capable, so why? But I think it's always just ends up being that way. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> I think I agree with that. Do you have plans to come back or do you permanently want to stay there and study there? I am open to whatever opportunity comes my way. Mm. So when I first left Botswana about to study psychology, I had it in my head that I would go and be a psychologist back in Botswana. But of course, that has evolved. And now I am not sure how my expertise will be valuable to the country. But if there is a way that it can be, then I would definitely like to pursue that. I think there's a lot of value in getting experience here before going back. So I don't know, getting as many publications out as possible. Or if I do want to do the teaching route, then maybe see if I could get a position here before going back and taking my experience back to Botswana. Um, but yeah, I am very open to what the future has in store for me. So whatever opportunities may come my way, we'll see. <laughs> for now, I'm just trying to get that degree. The reason I ask that is because I, I I like to kind of share experiences because in my master's class, we were a few African students. We were 60 in my class and I don't even think we were 60, possibly like 40. I could be wrong. My math is off. But maybe we were maybe, I would say maybe 10 to 15 max African students. And initially all of us were like, oh yeah, we're definitely going back. But then by the time we finished, of course the pandemic happened, but by the time we finished, we were also confused about what was going to happen. <laughs> so it's like, okay, so what do I do from here? And I always feel like people need to know that it's okay to not know what what's going to happen. And that's something that I've been adapting to myself I spoke about this in an earlier podcast where you have these plans in your head and you think they're going to work out and then you go to study or you go to work somewhere and then things just, you know, go completely different and you have no idea what you're going to do. So I'm glad that, like you said, you're just open to things and and you also just were like, yeah, so this is what my plan was and then it didn't work out that way. And so I have this plan and we'll see how that, that goes. Because it can feel very isolating sometimes to to not have any idea what what's going to happen. I I usually like to ask this question because people have the most interesting answers. But what's something that you think has been a mistake or a failure in your career? A mistake. Ooh. Well, I think it might have been in the fifties. Um. Scientists, particularly neuroscientists, I think, were um, doing studies of, of brainwashing on people without their consent. Um, so a lot of like electroconvulsive therapy, giving them insane amounts of LSD and just to see if they can brainwash them. I don't know what exactly the goal was, but it was like with the CIA was involved, the Canadian government was involved. Um, but anyway, this, I think... This led to a lot of mistrust of science, of neuroscience, of brain research, because then when people think neuroscience, sometimes they think, oh, mad scientist who wants to make us crazier than we already are, because that was a lot of what was going on at the time. So people would go in 
for simple things like um, postpartum depression and then come out completely changed or this electro electroconvulsive therapy just like for lack of a better way of phrasing this like melted their brain I mean it didn't actually melt their brain but like they were really incapable of like they were different people they were incapable of doing things for themselves uh, being fully autonomous just like really messed up by these experiments so yeah I think that has made people very skeptical of neuroscience research especially research that is done with participants with live participants whenever I tell a particular friend of mine that oh yeah I'm going to uh, the lab it's at a mental institute and he's like don't don't experiment on any of these uh, patients while you're there so I don't know I think that was a very bad thing on their part to do it also has really um, messed up studies around psychedelics so LSD is a psychedelic and in recent years people are finding that it could be a very good treatment for depression but now with this history of people being incredibly drugged by LSD. Now people are kind of resistant towards it. And I think this only added to the war on drugs that was happening. I just think they messed up by, with that by not getting consent, by, you know, really ruining these people's lives and, you know, just creating a general fear for science. See, again, why I like to interview people did not know that. So that's super <laughs> interesting. I didn't know that. Even I'm short. <laughs> like, I I knew the the electroconvulsive therapy and the history behind that because we study that in med school when you do psychiatry, and the forceful nature in which it was done. Even though there is some benefit, but doing it without people's consent and without properly um, medicating them, and just the trauma that comes with it is unthinkable, honestly. So I've been picking up on your interests and you have a lot, which is really fascinating to me. So you said you taught swimming and ballet yes. and you sing in an acapella group. Do you have any yeah. more hidden talents we should know of? Because, wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not that I can think of besides those. The acapella group, I'm no longer part of the group. I just sing in my apartment. Oh, I don't think I have any other hidden talents. Hopefully podcast host will be one of them eventually as this as I get better at podcasting <laughs> but yeah otherwise I just like to dance in my apartment uh oh I used to play the trumpet actually in high school I forgot about that um you're very yeah. um musically inclined yeah yeah I, I, I am <laughs> I love it how long did you do ballet I started when I was about 11 I think 10 or 11 I danced throughout high school. Um, I danced a bit when I got here and I taught for some time before I started here. So maybe 10, 11 years. Wow. That's so fascinating. Do you still have an interest in it? I, I do, but I don't have as much time for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think my sister's the one who really went ahead with her creative pursuits. So she's more of the dancer. She's part of a dance company. Yeah, for now, I just dance in my apartment. I sometimes put some ballet music on and do some ballet in the apartment. I miss it a lot. I think that was my favorite job when I was teaching ballet because I'd spend my days in the studio with kids, which was great fun. So I really do miss it. And if I could somehow find a way to bring it back, that would be awesome. That's really cool. As we wrap up, 
I have two last questions. So the first one is, what does the future look like for you? Hopefully, as long as I pass all my exams, we'll be starting a PhD program next September. And yeah, in the same labs, so doing the same research. Otherwise, beyond that, I have goals. I have dreams. <laughs> I don't know which of them will become realities. I, I think I want to teach. I think I want to stay in academia and um, be a principal investigator of my own lab. I, I would love to mentor students. I, I'm very passionate about ment in mentoring. Yeah. So beyond that, I don't really know. I imagine I'd do a postdoc after my PhD to get more experience before staying in academia. But also academia is a very interesting place. So maybe halfway through my PhD, I might feel like I don't want to continue in academia. So we'll see. I am very much open to seeing what happens in the future, just one step at a time. For now, I'm just trying to get that degree. <laughs> get the degree. You'll definitely ace it. And then lastly, what advice would you give to girls and women Again, specifically African, wanting to pursue your path. As much as I don't like networking, I'd say network, talk to people, tell people what you want to do. Because, you know, you may stumble upon somebody who knows somebody who can help you get to where you want to get to. So just verbalizing your goals, making it known to people. And it also, I think, will hold you accountable. Right? Like if you say, I want to be a therapist, and then a few years down the line, somebody checks in. It's like, so how's that therapy thing going for you? So I think, yeah, just talk to people. Also, know that you are capable. And I know, especially as an African woman, there aren't that many people in positions of power or positions of authority. So if you don't see someone in the position that you're trying to be in, go ahead and be that person for somebody else. And then where can our listeners find you and your podcast? So you can find me on LinkedIn, I guess, Rifilue Mbai, or on Twitter, Rifilue Mbai, or at fee underscore Mbai, or on Instagram at free spirit underscore fee. Or you can find my podcast, Journey Abroad, on Twitter at Journey Abroad underscore podcast and if you want to listen to the podcast it's available on spotify on apple podcasts on google podcasts stitcher Castbox, all of those yeah i release an episode every two weeks because i'm a grad student and i don't have time but um yeah so that's where you can find me so that's the conversation i had with Rafilwe. i had a really interesting time talking to her I think she's doing some fascinating work and also work that's just very important. I will leave the link to her podcast in the description box. Please go listen to it and support her. You can reach out to her um, through the contacts she has left if you're interested. That's it for this week. Have a very, very Merry Christmas. I hope you enjoy the time with your family and friends. I hope you eat so much and are ready to start the year fresh. See you next Friday. That will be all for this episode of Stemming from Africa. I hope you have a great weekend and I hope to see and hear from you next Friday.